I want to open the Word of God with you this morning and talk about the issue of losing heart. Losing heart. Our tendency to lose heart. And so while we are going to study Romans 8, by way of introduction, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, where Jesus asks a very compelling question. He tells a parable in Luke 18, first eight verses. And the reason for the parable is stated in the first verse. He was telling them this parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And this is the parable. In a certain city there was a judge who didn't fear God and didn't respect man. And there was a widow in that city. And she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling But afterward, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she'll wear me out. This is what the Lord said. Hear what the unrighteous judge said. And now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. So the point of the parable is obvious. You have temporal earthly concerns of this widow and temporal earthly opponents who come against the widow and temporal earthly justice. And if even in a temporal earthly unbelieving world you have some justice which gives some relief to someone from some temporal troubles, Will not God then on behalf of his elect, when you cry out to him, Lord, I want to be faithful. Lord, will you help? Will he not then for his elect come swiftly and bring about justice? Notice the question Jesus adds on the end though. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Wow. Will he find faith on the earth. What was the purpose of the parable? That we might know that at all times we should pray and not lose heart. It's another word for saying not be unbelieving, not drift into unbelief. Not drift into saying, Lord, we are facing troubles and I'm not sure I can believe that you're going to take care of our eternity. I'm not sure you're actually going to show up as the Son of Man and make all this right. And besides, I face rampant unbelief in my family members and I face rampant unbelief at my job and people around us and generations of unbelief and a culture that's, that's sliding rapidly into atheism and agnosticism and hatred of the things of the gospel. And physically I'm wearing out. Physically I'm dying. You young people don't think that that's going to come quickly, but it does. It comes quickly. And so I'm dealing with limitations and I'm dealing with physical infirmities and I'm dealing with a world that's increasingly hostile to the gospel. I can lose heart. And what about my own sin, my own battle with sin? I fail all the time. We're encouraged by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 to not lose heart even though there's rampant unbelief. He said, look, we've been given a ministry of mercy. Therefore, we don't lose heart because even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing and whose minds have been blinded by the God of this world. It is going to be so at times that we're right in the middle of 
all of that hostility and unbelief. And though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is renewed day by day, Paul says, so we're not to lose heart, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Don't grow weary, Galatians 6.9. Don't grow faithless about the tribulations that brothers and sisters in Christ have to endure, Paul says in Ephesians 3.13, because it's for God's glory and it's for your glory and your betterment that you go through these things. It strengthens faith. And Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him who has suffered such hostility against himself for the sake of your redemption and fix your hope on him. Don't lose heart. We drift. We face rampant unbelief and we drift. We face physical affliction and our faith gets weak. We face an increasingly evil world and we get sinfully fearful, growing persecutions and we try to retaliate because we're losing heart at times. And we sometimes have such weak faith that if the Lord showed up, would it not be a legitimate question? Will he find faith when he comes? Wherever you are on that day, will there be an encouraged heart, an enlarged heart, a faith that has grown from its seedbed form at salvation through the years so that your witness is effective and your spiritual fortitude is grounded and rooted in a deep and robust faith? Will he find faith when he comes? Sometimes we even question what will happen on that day when judgment comes. We think somehow that our salvation could be taken away from us. There are entire theological systems developed around the idea that you could actually lose what God gives in Christ. And so in Romans chapter 8, Paul settles the matter and he, he marvelously argues from the greater to the lesser in order to prove his point that on that day, you're not going to be lost. Nothing can come against you. Whatever might be a possible threat in this universe is no threat at all because of God's promise. Turn to Romans 8 and let's work our way through one of the most encouraging passages the most faith-building passages in all of Scripture. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28 and reading through the end of the chapter. And we know, Paul says, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. And what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised and who's at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer 
through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a great text because what Paul does here is he raises possible threats and then says they're not a a possible threat. He raises things that might come to our minds and then says they're of no importance. He raises the largest possible threats against your salvation when you face God in the end and then says there is no danger, no eternal danger. We're not to lose heart because when God promises and for all of the arguments and reasons Paul lays out here, your salvation cannot be lost. Now we're not going to work our way in detail through 28 and 29 and 30 because that's sort of the pre-section. It's, it's sort of the thesis statement for what follows in 31 through 39. But let's just review what Paul is saying. Notice verse 28, he says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. How do we know that? Because of what he has just said in the previous two verses about the Spirit. You've been given the Spirit of God and the Spirit helps your infirmity. In other words, he helps your weaknesses. He's not talking about in general the the failings of the day. When he says weaknesses there, he's talking about things that would indeed threaten your faith and make you lose your salvation. The Spirit helps you with those. And if I had to keep my faith, I couldn't do it. If I had to keep my faith, I would lose it every moment, every test, every day. So the Spirit helps our weakness, that which, which could threaten our salvation, And notice, we don't know how to pray as we should. (laughs) But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's not not really a complex verse. All it's saying is you don't have all of God's will in your mind when you pray. You don't have um, all of what's ahead and your future um, clear before you when you pray. So you don't know how to navigate that. You can't see it. You don't even know how to take your weaknesses and sins before the Lord and talk about all that's in your heart because you can't see all that's in your heart nor understand it. So when you go before the Lord, when you're losing heart and your faith is weak and you just dump it all on the Lord, the Spirit of God takes all of that and begins to, he takes the core of it, the faith of it, and he begins before the throne of God's grace to expand it according to God's will and according to God's grace and according to God's strength in order for that moment at that time to bring you to strengthening so that your faith is sustained. The Spirit does that supernaturally in an inner Trinitarian communication you and I don't understand. That's how all things in my life and your life work together for good. That's how it results in God's glory and our salvation. Now notice verse 29. Obviously we're called according to God's purpose and it's explained here. For those whom he foreknew. What is that? He foreloved you. Trace that term all the way through the Old and New Testament and it it reflects God setting his affection sovereignly on you. Even while you're an ungodly, 
sinner dead in trespasses. He set his affection on you before the world began, Ephesians 4 says. So this is his for love. His foreknowledge is his for loving you. And those whom he foreknew in that sense, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that Christ would be the prototype of all these redeemed humanity that worship him for eternity, the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, here's the unbreakable chain. He also called, and then if he called you, he justified you, and if he justified you, he glorified you. So he foreloved you, he predestined you that you're going to be saved and be conformed to the image of his son. And then in history, in your life, he, by his providence, brought all the elements together that would bring you to that one day where he would break your heart over your sin and he would open your eyes to Christ's loveliness and grant you repentance and faith. And you, with all your heart, looking at it from the human side, you embraced Christ. You were called in that moment. He brought all that together. Gospel proclamation, a friend at work, a grandmother who prays for you, a circumstance, an affliction, a guilt, sin, trouble, false religion, confusion. He used all of that in his providence to bring you to the place where he called you. And having called you, when you believed in him, you were before the Father declared righteous in Christ. So you're justified, you're acceptable. And the last term here in verse 30 is also in the past tense, though it hasn't happened yet. You're glorified. You are covered by Christ's glory, but your ultimate glory where you put on immortality and your outside matches your inside, that's coming, and yet it's in the past tense. It's, it's in the, the sense that it's already happened. It's as good as done. So if we can't be lost because of God's definition of this unbreakable chain of redemption. Paul then wants to take that and like a divine zip file, just click on it and let it spread out into these possible threats that might come to your mind and cause you to lose heart. And that's what we have here in the rest of this text. And he opens with a question, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? I mean, if the Spirit's interceding and it all works together for our good and we're called and justified and glorified and it's an unbreakable chain, then what are we going to say? What possible other conclusion could we come to than the one we must come to? If God is for us, Who will be against us on that day? What will be against us? Who will be against us? Is there any threat that could come against us on that day? It's a great question. And it makes the rest of the chapter the inevitable conclusion to what has been said. And its intention is to crush any doubt, faithlessness, so that when Christ comes, He will find His people strengthened in their faith, strengthened in their faith, knowing that God will swiftly bring about what His people need. So let's talk about these five possible threats that are no threat. I love how Paul lays it out. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. He's going he's to tell you that these will be the greatest threats, and since all of them have been taken care of, then there is no greater threat that could come upon you. Let's put them in the form of conditions. If God the Father withholds it from you, that's the first one. 
If in the end, on the day of judgment, if God the Father for some reason would withhold it from you. Second thing Paul brings up is sin. If sin is charged against you on that day, could you lose your security, your eternity? So if God the Father withheld it from you, if sin could be charged against you, or if the Savior would disown you, that's the third one he brings up. The third possible threat is if the Savior disowns you on that day. Because perhaps you just weren't measuring up. Or if evil overtakes you, that's the fourth one he brings. Sometimes we wonder about the evil of the world and we lose heart because we we just think, you know, this is too much. Um, When is it ever going to bring us to the full glory of our salvation if this much evil is occurring? We we even imagine that evil won't be taken care of and, and it will overtake the world and we know our theology, but sometimes even our emotions take time to catch up with our theology and, <clears throat> and we lose heart. If God the Father withheld it from you, if sin would be charged against you, if the Savior would disown you, if evil overtakes you. And a fifth one, which really isn't in the structure of the text uh, a main point, but I, I like to draw it out as one. In the, in the last few verses, he sort of suggests that maybe an unknown force somewhere in the universe might have dominion over you on that day. Something we're unaware of. So we put it in the form of questions. Will the Father withhold it from you? Will sin be charged against you in the end? Will the Savior disown you? Will some evil overtake you? Or will an unknown force in the universe have dominion over you? All five possibilities we might worry about are mentioned here as impossibilities. Let's just look at them. The first one, will the Father withhold it from you? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will then he not also with him freely give us all things? Here's how the first threat is reasoned out. Paul basically says, look, if God freely delivered over the one truest and highest love of his heart and life, his own son, his beloved son, if he gave him as the redeemer of our souls, there is no higher or greater or more loving gift that could be given. There's no higher cost that could be offered. There's no more precious commodity that could be laid down on the altar of redemption. And if you say, well, is there something God will withhold from me in the end? Is there something about my salvation that might be lost in the judgment? The answer is simply, what possible thing could keep you from God's salvation that would be more precious to Him than His own perfect and holy and beloved Son? It's a great way to begin. There is nothing. God the Father gave the highest love of His own very existence, His own Son. And He gave His Son to us that we might be with Him for all eternity. And so, if you have the Son of God as a gift, nothing else is that perfect. If God's Son was given to you by the Father as a gift, nothing could be more beloved. Look at John 3 very quickly with your finger there in Romans. Look at John's Gospel, chapter 3. I just want to remind you of what Jesus, uh, of what is spoken of about the Father and the Son here in John 3. 
John the Baptist, his last testimony, notice verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And he who believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who doesn't obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There it is. The Father loves the Son, and because He loves the Son, He gave everything into the Son's power, into the Son's authority. He gave it over into His Son's hand. So when you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. You can't have it taken from you if the Father gave it all to the Son and He gave it to you with all authority. can't be removed from you. If while we were enemies, Paul makes the same argument in Romans 5, verse 10. If while we were enemies, Christ died for us, then how is it that you're not going to be saved by his life? It's impossible to not be saved by his life if while you were an enemy of God, he laid down his life so that you might have life. Back to Romans, he says, how will he not freely give us all things? It is the word to to grant graciously and generously with the implication of permanent good. So God didn't grant his son to us for a temporary good or to take the rug out from underneath us at the end. He granted it to us with implication of goodwill on the part of the giver for a permanent good. He bestowed it generously. It was of the highest cost. It was most precious to him. There's nothing else more precious, nothing else that he could give that would cost more. And so, how will he not freely give us, notice, all things. If you have Christ, you get everything that comes with Christ. You get eternity. God can't give any more than his son. That's Paul's opening first argument. He gave his son, he withholds nothing of lesser value. Second possible threat that is no threat. Will will sin be charged against you? Verse 33. Will sin be charged against you? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies And this is sort of moving into the realm of what makes you acceptable before God. So this is a threat of a legitimate charge brought on judgment day as you're standing before God. He is the creator of the universe. He is holy. He is perfect. He can't abide sin, look upon sin, stand it in his presence. By the way, just so you know, anybody who says hell isn't eternal is saying that God's glory isn't eternal. Because if there is an offense against his glory by someone who's not covered by the righteous substitution of Christ, then God must be glorified forever in punishing that sin or his glory would end. Hell has to be forever because God's glory doesn't end. And so someone who's not in Christ seems a pretty simple concept in Scripture. Anyone who's trying to deny that is, has an agenda against God's glory. But the idea here, the imagery here is there you stand before God. Could it be that in the end some charge could be brought against you that you either weren't aware of or wasn't brought up before? And you, you might even lose heart or, or begin to doubt that, that an accusation could come from somewhere. What about the world? What about the world? What about somebody coming on the last day and saying, you know what, you, you were no different than I was. I know you placed your faith in Christ, but you were really no different than I was because I saw you do some sinning. What about your own heart? What about accusations against your own heart? I mean, we struggle with that. Lord, do I have to, 
Do I have to earn your love? I know I'm in Christ. I know I can't earn your love, but sometimes I, I wonder if you're going to love me less if I sin. And sometimes I even imagine, strangely, that you'll love me more if I don't sin. We kind of get into this performance thing. All of that is faithlessness. It's unbelief. It's doubt. It is to lose heart in what is being said here. So on the judgment day, we might even imagine that our own heart could accuse us and and bring up something. Yeah, but I knew the truth about me. I wasn't quite what I needed to be. Could any charge come from your own conscience? 1 John 3 says, in whatever your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. He even is bigger than your own self-assessment. What about Satan? Supernatural world operates in a realm we don't operate in, and we're not to engage the evil world around us in the supernatural realm, but we are to stand firm in the armor of God and, and walk in Christ, and we're protected by Christ and our salvation, but you wonder if Revelation 12 says that he's the the accuser of the brethren before the throne of God. No doubt he's had plenty in my life to accuse. You know, we don't know that he does the same thing he did with Job, but we do know it happened that he went before the throne and said, he obeys you with a personal agenda. You let me at him and I'll show you he'll deny you. That's a serious accusation. He doesn't love you. His faith isn't real. Almost as if Satan was kind of hanging around Job's camp and seeing Job fail sometimes out behind the tent. Could that come against you on the last day? What about someone who knows you best? You come here to church and no one knows the secret things. And some of your people in the church don't know even the private circle you're in and sometimes it's just your closest friend or your spouse that knows the sins you have committed could those be brought up could your friend or a loved one or someone in your close circle bring an accusation on that day those are all the finite possibilities and the things we sometimes lose faith over and those are finite possibilities what about the infinite possibility that Paul brings up here who will bring a charge against God's elect God is the one who justifies. So Paul is saying, look, Satan can't bring something in the end that could take it from you. You can't bring something in the end that could take it from you. Friends and close acquaintances can't bring something in the end that could take your salvation from you. Your own heart, your own assessment can't bring something. Why? Because those are finite possibilities that could threaten your salvation. There is an infinite one who could threaten your salvation. That's God himself, and he won't even bring a charge. That is radical. Can't get more secure than that. He won't bring a charge. Why? Because we're his elect. God is the one who makes you acceptable. You're elect. You're his elect. It's personal. He's chosen you, and you're the called. That's why the question in verse 31 makes sense. If God is for you, who's against you? God's not against you. There isn't any other thing that could be against you. I remember when our four kids were going through their teen years and working through, are they going to serve Christ? Are they going to serve the flesh and the world and all the things that we parents pray about constantly and keep giving them the gospel? And I remember my son was probably 16 or so and he was wrestling with all those things in his Christian school and his peer group and 
remember standing in the entryway one night, we were having a, a discussion, <laughs> and um, my wife was listening to me talk to my son, and she said, listen, son, I'm just here to tell you, on Judgment Day, if you're not in Christ, I will be on God's side, not yours. I will be against you and for His glory. And I looked at her and thought, wow, man, that's serious. Are you going to be against me too? So I went and prayed to get saved. That's a serious thing for a mom to say. But she was illustrating this truth. If you're in Christ, God isn't against you. But if you're apart from Christ, that day, it's over. He's against you. And so will every other person who honors the glory of God. So we're not to lose heart if we're in Christ because God justifies the elect. What does that mean? He declares you righteous in Christ. That is to say, you're fully acceptable in His holy presence. There isn't an accusation from a lesser source that could ever alter your justified status. God is the highest court in the universe. He's the ultimate law. There is no accusation that would stick. He's the supreme lawgiver. He's the sovereign judge. He's the infinite, holy, and righteous standard by which everything is measured. If he's not going to charge you, then your sin is indeed covered. Satan can't come. Demons can't come. Your own accusations from your own heart can't come. Your enemies can't come. Even those who know your sin up close and personally, they can't come. They're not going to reverse your heavenly privilege. So will the Father withhold it from you? Impossible. Is there a threat that some sin can be charged against you? It's no threat at all. Number three, will the Savior disown you? I love this. We move now from the general charge of God Himself to the Savior as your advocate. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? That, that is a question repeated, not because it's relating to what was just said, but it's about to be answered with the following. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's turning the corner here from the general charges that might be leveled against us to a charge that might come, and Jesus, as our lawyer, would walk away and say, I have no defense. That can't happen. In the end, when we stand before a holy judge... We know we don't deserve to be there except by grace, right? We know that. I'm aware of that. In fact, young people who are trying to grapple with what your parents are pumping into you in terms of the gospel and what they're trying to teach you about choosing Christ and honoring Christ, you imagine in your youth that um, life Though, though bleak out there as the news reports it, life in your little world of peers is pretty smooth, looks pretty good. Pretty good outlook, future, achievements, college, whatever, friends. But the older you get, and this is what your parents know that you don't know, the longer you live with sin, the more that becomes the backdrop of everything. It's nothing but the weariness of the taste of sin in your mouth. We know it from our first moment of awareness. 
and we never get away from it. So imagine the day before God. Every one of us knows, unless we're blinded in sin, but every Christian knows we don't belong there with an advocate. There is no defense for me. There's nothing that could be said on my behalf that would matter. Even if I lived an entire righteous life and gave my body to be burned in martyrdom, it would be a zero kind of love. It would be for myself, and as Isaiah says, it would be filthy garments. There's nothing in God's presence. It adds up to zero. I don't belong there. I should be condemned. I should say on that day, if it weren't for Christ, I am condemned. You don't need to try to bring a charge. I already get it. I got here knowing it. Now I see it in all of its depth and offense, but I've been tasting it all my life. I know my status. I know what it should be. But the point he's making here is, in that moment, would Jesus then say, yeah, you're right? No. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised and who's at the right hand of God. I love this. Who also intercedes for us. So back there I have the Spirit interceding for me to sustain my faith and I find out that my advocate is interceding with his own payment. Not going to walk away. Why isn't he going to walk away? Listen, for Jesus Christ to disown you on judgment day would mean that he denigrates his own cross and he denigrates the power of his own resurrection and he denigrates his father's declaration that it was satisfying. To imagine that Christ would disown you on that day is to imagine that Christ would disown his own substitutionary work and depreciate it and devalue it and disgrace it. He would never do that. Bible says that he bore our sins in his body, 1 Peter 2. He would be going against the value of that to walk away from you in the end. The Bible says it pleased the Father to crush him, Isaiah 53.10. If he would offer himself as a guilt offering. Listen, he would be saying, oh, the guilt offering was useless, worthless, if he were to disown you. Because you're the one whom he gave it to and offered it for. Colossians 2 says it canceled out the debts that were hostile against us. You know, certificates of condemnation because of your and my sin that were nailed to the cross. You know what Jesus would be saying if he disowned you at the end? It doesn't matter. Those debts were never really canceled. That was a cheap illusion. He would never do that. He would never think less of the sufficiency of the cross. Why do we? He would never think less of the efficacy of his redeeming work. Why do we? He would never depreciate his sacrifice. Notice who was raised. He was resurrected. That was the Father putting his exclamation point stamp of approval on the finished work of God, uh, finished work of Christ. The Father's wrath was satisfied. Listen, for Christ to disown you on the end would be to say it wasn't really satisfying. We all lied. It was a big ruse. He would never do that. He's at the right hand of the Father, so if He disowns you at the end, He's depreciating His authority. He's appreciating divine authority, depreciating it. He would be saying, it's of no value. 
Divine authority doesn't matter because in the end, I'm going to take away from you what God gave me authority to give to you and that which I actually gave to you with authority, I'm going to remove. Makes no sense. The implication then is that Jesus is in the position of ultimate authority, having satisfied the wrath of God, God affirmed it with his resurrecting power. We are given that power for our life in eternity. And then this statement, this same Jesus is one who then intercedes for us. Here's how the writer of Hebrews says it in Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He doesn't just make intercession, he always lives to make intercession. (laughs) Every moment of every day of your time from the time you were called till the time you are glorified, he's making intercession. Why? Because he chose you in eternity past and loved you in eternity past and called you in history and then saved you, justified you. He wants to bring you to glory and it's going to happen because he is sustaining and interceding because he's able to save forever. He's not just able, he wants to. If he had the power but no willingness, we'd be in trouble. If he had all the willingness but no power, we'd be equally in trouble. He has both resurrection power and willingness. That's right. He's able to save forever those who are justified and those who are his children whom he's making intercession for every moment of every day. (laughs) In the end, he can't disown you. The last two go very quickly. Will some evil overtake you? Notice verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then verse 36 brings up the Old Testament, Psalm 44, just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long and we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Why is he writing that? Why is he quoting that? Because he's saying, look, we, we knew this was going to happen. It was said of God's people. And so in this temporal life, when you're afflicted, you shouldn't lose heart. Of course we're considered as the dregs of society. Of course. But it doesn't change your eternity. It can't. Who is going to separate us from the love of Christ? What person behind some tribulation or outcome that is a terrible scenario could ever remove you? This is to speak of natural evil and moral evil. People perpetrating evil on you and the, the cursed world with which we, we, in which we live and, and that brings upon us all kinds of natural evil. None of that can affect your security. Notice the list here. Tribulation. It's the word thlipsis. I kind of put these in H's. So just for your notes, you can write these down. Here they are. Hassles. Heartache. Hostility. Hunger. Homelessness. Horrors. And hatred. (laughs) It's about as clever as I can get. Hassles. Heartache. Hostility. Hunger homelessness, horrors, and hatred. And those are just words that describe what is being talked about here. Hassles, that's the word tribulation. It us. It's the squeezing of life's pressures. And it goes along with heartache. Heartache 
is, is the word here um, in the text, distress, and it means to be hemmed in with no way out, to feel as though you're in a trial claustrophobically. So you've got pressure in life, the hassles of life, helplessly hemmed in with no way out, no way out at times. Then hostility, which is the word uh, persecution. This is someone coming against the gospel. This is suffering for the sake of Christ. And then hunger. What about famine conditions? I was telling the first service that we're, we're, we're coming to the place where economic trouble is going to bring about some, some new desperate kind of conditions and people doing new and desperate kind of things in an organized and criminal fashion. Well, I don't really believe that faithful Christians preaching the word of God are going to be at the head of their bread list. I don't think so. A friend of mine, was t- he's a student in the seminary, he's from Canada, and he was telling me that they have, they have just made a law in his province that you can't build a new church. You can renovate an old church already in existence, but you cannot buy land to build a new church. It's over in that province. They are trying to silence Christians. So what if that results in your hunger, your, your inability to live economically and properly? What about homelessness, destitution, uh, nakedness? That's what the word means, destitution. How about the horrors of life, peril? That's just dangers uh, and treachery. Danger that comes from natural evil and treachery against your life and mistreatment. And then, of course, the sword. That's martyrdom or People coming against you and taking your life. Will some evil overtake you? Notice verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. Wow. In all these things, whatever they may be, we conquer in Christ. What's, what's the last part? It, it's not structurally a main point, but I've kind of made it a main point because it represents sort of Paul taking all this the final, anything you could imagine in, in your imagination, he just sort of gathers it all into this one point. Is there any unknown force in the universe that could hold dominion over you and somehow rob you of what is to come? Will it all be worth it? Notice, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels or principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, any other created thing will be able to separate us. You basically have all the three categories all you'd ever need here. Supernatural realities, you got angels and principalities. Angels, that is to say those who operate as God made them in the supernatural realm. So any quality they have that you, you're not aware of, it still can't come against your salvation. And any principality, that is to say their power that God gave them, there's no supernatural power they have that could come against Christ or your salvation. So the angelic realm isn't going to threaten you on that day. And the historical realities, things present, that's what we know through the five senses. There's nothing right now that you know through the five senses. Whatever you think of it, however it makes you fear, or however it threatens your faith, none of it that you know through the five senses matters. It's not going to affect your eternal reality. Things to come, there's nothing you don't know in the future that's going to somehow trip you up, pull the rug out. And um, powers, that, that's our ability to achieve things and accomplish things and our strengths and limitations. He's talking about our temporal abilities. There's nothing in your limitations that could keep your eternity from you. 
And then these last two are amazing. These are the, uh, here's a big word for you, existential realities. This is how the universe exists. And so he says, look, you could go to the height of the universe or the floor of it. Everything in between God's created universe. Well, how big is that? Well, my word. I mean, there's nothing in any of that space from the ceiling to the floor of it that is in existence that could come against you. And just in case you you just wanted to still doubt and lose heart and say, but there might be some created thing. He just says, nor any other created thing. (laughs) The self-existent one, God, has redeemed you. He's He's given you his spirit to sustain and intercede for you. He's given you the most precious gift, his son. You're in his son. He's now your advocate who intercedes for you. There is nothing that can come against it. So why is it (laughs) that when we see these things, we doubt. Will Jesus find faith in your life that's strong and robust and ready and effective and a testimony? Will he find that in your life when he comes? Are you persisting like the widow? Are you persisting in eternal things saying, Lord, bring your elect home secure eternity. In the meantime, make me a rescuer. Not a doubter, not sitting in the corner worrying about all this stuff. Will he find faith on the earth? That's, that's the question. You want to not lose heart? Wash your soul with that reality. If God is for us, who could be against us? No one and nothing. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this encouragement together in your word. Thank you for the way that this text gathers in every possible machination that we could come up with, every possible doubt that we could cultivate and nurture, every possible faithless moment in our mind and heart that we might rely on, every belief that gets shaky. Lord, you you bring it all together right here in this one text and you mean it for our strengthening that we might not lose heart. And so we pray. We ask for your grace that we would be a people that, that stand where you have promised and entrust ourselves to it so that on that day you'll find such strong faith in us faith rooted in your grace and faith rooted in our yielding to the truth that we've heard keep us from the evil one make us effective we pray in Christ's name amen